In 2017, I quit my nine to five to take the leap and built my million dollar business. Since then, I've been on a mission to turn dreams into reality and help others do the same. But here's the big question. How do real entrepreneurs like us, you know, the ones who are risking our own life savings and starting from the bottom, how do we transform our lives, make the impact we crave and build a profitable business all from scratch? That's the question, and this show gives you the answers. I am Lexi Godlewski, and welcome to Building My Empire. Hi, everybody. This is Lexi Godlewski, and welcome back to another episode of Building My Empire. Today, I am so, so, so excited to have Tammy Jordan on the show, and I'll explain why in a minute. But Tammy is an author of a brand new book that just came out today that we'll talk about. Um, She's an organizational development consultant and just an amazing person overall. So Tammy, welcome to the show. I am truly so happy to have you here. I kind of want to (laughs) scream. Me too. That's how I feel. (laughs) Um, I'm so excited to be here. I, yeah. I'm not gonna, so say what you were saying because we, we started to have a conversation before yes. we started recording. So go back to that. Yes. Saying, and then I'll, I'll say what I was going to say. All right, great. So what I was going to say and what I was starting to say to you earlier was I am truly so happy to have you on the show because this is a full circle moment for me because every time anyone who knows my story knows that I started this whole thing by um, when I was in college doing an internship and at the internship, I thought this one woman's job was so cool at it. And so I mustered up just enough courage to ask her like, Hey, can we get drinks so I can ask you what you do? She said, yes. We sat down. I asked her what she does. She's like, I'm a coach. And I also work as a consultant. And then long story short, we ended up bartering services. And that's what led me down this whole path of marketing, consulting and coaching and all of that fun stuff. And that woman was Tammy Jordan. And so it's so cool now, years later, because that was what, probably in 2015, I think. So to be five, you know, just five, I guess five, six years later now, Um, to be here, like having a conversation where you just wrote a book and you're doing all these amazing things. And I'm running my own business now is like really, really mind blowing. So thank you so much for everything that you've done in my life, because I would not be here today if it weren't for you. Oh my goodness. Um, You did the work. You did the work. So I only showed you kind of a glimmer into the world, but you, you, and, and crazy, like how different is your life now? Oh my gosh. Even I remember because you were still working with me as a coach when I was at my nine to five and miserable. And yeah. you were like one of the people that I could call up on the phone and say, Tammy, I hate this job. I want to quit and start my own business. And you were like, hell yeah. What do you got to do next to make it happen? And I was like, all right, let's do this. Like you were that person that was there for me every step along the way. And I can't thank you enough for that. Oh, you're very welcome. Well, entrepreneurs, as I know many of your, your, your audience probably is they're entrepreneurs. It's a, it's your, with regular traditional society or the, the rest of the world is, is what I say. Um, it's a little bit like you're going against the grain. It's, yeah. it's not a, it, you know, this isn't, this is something that's built into your DNA and it feels like you're the square peg in a round hole unless you surround yourself with other entrepreneurs. So, so and it's kind of perfect the way that this book is. So I'll relate it to the book in a minute, but if your family, if you're, if you're, you know, growing up or you are the entrepreneur in a family of safe and steady eddies, 
you know, it becomes an awkward thing where you're like, I want to go out on my own. I want to do this. And like, you're, you know, your parents only want the best for you. Right. So they're sitting there and like, you got to get health insurance and you're going to go on and they like start freaking, you can see them. They like just start sweating at the dining room table. And I think you had a couple of those moments. I did. I did too. Yeah. And uh, before I became an entrepreneur, I actually walked out on a job. It was my first job into the corporate world and they fired my boss. They wanted me to basically take the role a little bit without getting compensated and without the title. And then they were going to bring somebody else in who didn't know my job, but who had an MSW and they wanted to give her. So basically I would be doing the work she would be. And I basically told them to pound sand. And so I came home to my mom and I said, well, I gave my notice. I'm done. And she goes, yeah, but you don't have another job. And I'm like, yeah. So I'm 20, (laughs) 21. I'm living at home. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Like I'll figure this out. And I had a job within three days. I went, you know, got retail job. And then I wasn't afraid of working. And when you're not afraid of working and you're not afraid of busting your butt, it doesn't matter. You just, you just figure it out. And if you know, you've got, that's why I also say, if you're an entrepreneur have, I worked and then I started working in restaurants. So I learned retail. I learned restaurants. I learned because then you can, you can always have a hustle, right. To make no, money, is so not true. a thing, you know, money is you can make money a thousand different ways. It's if you have something that lights you up that you can also make money. That's great. But if you need money in order to foster what lights you up, then it doesn't matter how you, you just get it done. And I just love food and wine and that whole <laughs> world. So it worked, it worked out, but anyway, side story. So the, the, the book and the reason why I kind of wanted to weave that story in there is, you know, the, the interconnectedness, right? Entrepreneurs, if, if they are going against that grain, the interconnectedness of finding your peeps, finding your, mm. your people that get you uh, that understand that this is a fuel or a fire inside of you, that if you squelch it or squash it, you, you start dying. Like, and you can really feel it. It's in, and it's oh, everything so wrapped up into mental health. Um, and 2020 showed us that, right? Like if, mm-hmm. if you don't have tools to be able to foster that fire, you'll, you'll feel the flame go out and a little bit of you were meant to do this, right? You're meant to do this yeah. work and you just know. It. And that's something that's been a continual theme in my life, even with writing this book. Although, as we'll talk about 2020, certainly made me rumble with the weather or not. I knew I was meant to write this book. I'd known that, but 2020 kind of all the delays and publishing and oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's not for the faint of heart. Yeah. And I think number one thing, no matter whether you're an entrepreneur or not, is just learning how to have patience and learning how to trust the process and enjoy the process, even if it doesn't seem all glitz and glamour, like you thought it was going to be like, how do you continue to just take steps forward and trust that process, even when it's not according to your timeline or the way that you wanted it to work out? You know, there is totally a divine path. Um, there's a, or divine sequencing of events that the older I get, the more I realize that things happen not, you can drive something with all grit and all tenacity and the world has a very mysterious way. If it's not meant to happen, it will keep throwing up roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. And I can't, and this, again, this book process, you can know something cognitively and still do it in your life, right? Like this is mm. what, this is why coaching is so about empowering others and being humble 
is because everything that I say in my coaching practice to other people, it's a reminder to self. Like we're all here just to help each other. What Ram Das talks about walking each other home. We're all here just mm. to walk each other home. I don't, I know it. That doesn't mean I'm good at practicing it. Right. And so if you ever come across a coach, that's going to tell you how to fix your life, tell you how to get better, tell you everything you found the wrong person. Oh, it's so true. Just, yeah. That's just going to be the first mic drop of our conversation because it like, that's what I tell. That's what I client tell all my clients at the beginning. It's like, I truly believe that you're the expert of your life and your dreams and your vision and what you want. And it's your responsibility to know that and to own that and to believe in that, you know, versus just having someone else tell you what is best for you to do. Yes. And that's, you know, the book is a, you know, it's, it's my own story. So it talks about trauma. It talks about resilience and adversity and overcoming challenges and kind of being your own hero a little bit being your own analytical hero, right? Like what is going on with the patterns in my life and how, and I think my acknowledgement section is the longest acknowledgement section I've ever written in a book because, or I've ever seen written in a book because I did want to there were so many people that had a role in helping me along the way. But the only person you have along the entire course of your life is you. You are the expert on you. And so if you don't go into these coaching situations or consultants or whatever and not know you, it's not, you're not gonna get the most out of it because they're there to pick up on what you say, right? My goal as coach is you say something and instinctively I'm like, oh, there it is, right? And you may not know Mm -hmm. it yet, but I'm just going to kind of nudge you and say, I think I'm feeling something. What's that about? And then the more you sit with it, it's just a mirror. It's just a mirror to see yourself better. That's all it is. Totally. So why don't you tell us more about your book, what it is, what it's about, and also fill us in on what is your background story that brought you to where you are today? Okay. So that's, that's great because the book is actually so the book is a, a story about, okay, my, my life really, uh, and really a couple, a lot of themes going on. So I had a narcissistic parent, so we could say toxic parent. Um, and so it kind of made me an expert in narcissism. And, it, and, and really I was on the trajectory in my twenties to kind of become one. Um, and I use, let me, let me preface, let me go back. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a clinical di- uh, clinician. I can't diagnose narcissism. This is really from just my own experience and tons and tons of self-awareness and research into narcissistic behaviors. I, I actually don't believe that my father was a full-fledged narcissist. I think he, he was an alcoholic. He had a lot of pain. He had a lot of trauma. So he was numbing. There was alcoholism and drug abuse and he had narcissistic behaviors that were very challenging as a child to navigate. So it's my story about, as all children do, we, you know, well-intentioned parents, right? They tell you you're, you're smart, right? They tell you they have faith in you. They tell you they love you, or not just parents, family members, friends of the family, teachers. But what happens is, is along the way, they also make subtle, you know, suggestions or subtle, their actions speak louder than their words. So my story is I 
created, we all create these assumptions, these belief systems that shape the way that we engage with the world. And I didn't realize I had these until I really started writing the book. The book's process was a book process about healing, telling my story about my dad. But then I, through that, I realized what this was all about is that I put into place, and I call them keystones. And if you think about a keystone at the top of a, like an arc, right? The keystone architecturally is the stone in the middle that kind of holds the whole arc up. And when you take it down, the whole arc fall, or arch falls down. And so one of my keystones that I had at an early age was um, that I put myself, or that I don't matter was, is how I worded it. I put myself last. And how that happens is that when you live with a toxic parent, the selfishness, right? They always come first. They always come first. They always put their, they're not thinking of the child. And you know, children, that's their job is to be selfish. So if my father kept inserting himself of saying, it's me, 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 and then my mother was codependent, my mother just wanted my father to not react, not be violent, not, so she was putting herself last, putting, she was saying she doesn't matter because she was just trying to survive. So I inherently learned through this toxic dynamic that, okay, in order to not cause trouble, you become the peacemaker right? You silence yourself. You don't speak, even as a child, you don't speak up for yourself. You put yourself last. Whoa. So the implications of that are huge as you become an adult where you start getting into relationships that kind of suck, right? You're like dating guys. You're like, why do I, why do I sit here? Why, listen to this guy jabber on about himself for like 45 minutes. And I feel weird if I have to interrupt and say, I'd like to talk about myself. Yeah. <laughs> Shouldn't you be asking me questions about me too? Why did I keep finding myself in these situations? And what I really determined is that it's the keystones. It's these things that you put into place as a, as a child and you keep doing it. And until you really pull yourself back and again, the codependency. So the reason why I brought it up before of, you know, with entrepreneurs, if you're breaking the cycle, right? So if, if your whole family's lived in fear of, we have to worry about our healthcare. We have to worry about this. We have to worry about where we're getting this insurance, you know, or, or everything because something bad happened to them. And then you come along and you have an entrepreneurial mindset and you're like, we don't have to worry about anything. <laughs> we can just do whatever we want to do. You're like jarring to the system, mm. right? You're jarring to all of their keystones because their keystones were put in place by their parents, right? Mm -hmm. And their, and their parents' keystones were put into so it's a blessing that you are where you're at because you're able to see it, right? This is what your parents did for you. So there's a gratitude also in, in, in adversity. There's a, there's a gratitude that comes into, I'm grateful for my dad. I'm grateful for my mother and my mother's side of the family because they provided stability enough, meaning I didn't have to worry about food. So because that need was taken care of, I was able to see what I could take down right? Which had been with the families for years because that's how trauma impacts, right? If you have trauma because you're worried about food or your food unstable, the next generation will until that need is resolved. It's very, a little bit like, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So I just went off way, way deep about the book, but it, it, it's more in the, it, it tells the, the very specific examples and how it rippled out into my life and how 
it was a little bit of coming of age because it, all through my 20s was really discovering, oh my goodness, I started to see patterns of myself that were just like my father. And because you've learned how to recognize <laughs> those patterns and recognize those um, just tendencies that I kind of want to get into uh, that a narcissist tends to have, you also started to notice that in the workplace, right? And, and kind of those narcissistic type behaviors in entrepreneurs and that type of thing. I definitely feel like I've come across entrepreneurs who are narcissistic and um, I've had to learn how to navigate, you know, around that. So I'd love to hear your experience around that as well. Yes. So of course my background, um, I worked in education. I worked in healthcare. I worked, obviously, you know, we talked about, um, retail and the restaurant industry. And then probably in my 20s, kind of where this book ends, I went back to school. I was always interested in HR, but the bigger concept of HR, um, organizational development, leadership. But when you start out in your 20s, they don't give you the organizational development work. They give you the <laughs> yep. Excel spreadsheets and the, yep. the calling employees and it's boring as anything. So I kind of dropped it and I went back to work. Well, one of the things my father taught me being a narcissist um, or having narcissistic behaviors is you always have to think strategically. Everything to them is a chess game, okay? Because, and again, I don't know where this, where this gets, I think it's survival. I think his dad was probably narcissistic or his mother was as well. And so when you're, because here's what they create. They create this tension. You can feel it with a knife, right? that if I don't say the right thing, they're gonna take it out on me or they're gonna hold a carrot over my head or take the carrot away. They use money a lot. They use, they use like, well, you didn't fulfill the contract. This is how it's gonna start sounding. So in my work as an organizational development consultant, I can see behaviors in people really fast. So my dad gave me a huge gift, mm. gave me a gift that is my profession. My profession- What an incredible perspective though, is like, there's so many people who could take that and probably do take that of like, my father was a narcissist and use it to be in victim mode of like, poor me, poor me, poor me. Look at, you know, what I had to grow up with and what a beautiful perspective switch that is to say, this was a gift that I grew up with a dad who was a narcissist, because now I know what to recognize in my work and in my profession and the work that I do with other people. Yes. And I, don't get me wrong. Just like I said, before, I, I was not always, <laughs> right. the, you know, the, the flip the script glasses half full. I was very much in victim mode for a good portion of my teens. Uh, I'll share this nugget with you for your listeners. I was voted class pessimist. Big shock there. Um, because I was, you know, I was dealing with some pretty heavy, excuse my language, shit. Yeah. When everyone was looking for prom dresses, you know, my father was calling me in the middle of the night, drunk, um, playing Russian roulette on the phone. So to me, I, I was in total victim mode. I, I was crying out for attention. But the thing is, is when you're in your twenties, something happens where you, you say, I either get to own my life or I'm going to stay in victim mode. And when you choose as an entrepreneur to say, I'm going to own my life, shit starts to change. Things start to change. So that's when I realized, wait a minute, he gave me this gift. Anyone can walk into a room and I can feel an energy like with the drop of a hat. Someone gets weird with somebody and I know it's like micro expressions. Everything is so visceral for me because again, I had to read my father before he opened his mouth because if he opened his mouth and I wasn't prepared for what came at me, I was screwed. And so I was just trying to survive. 
And I think it's in my DNA. I think he does it really well. So let me get back to the traits. They're extraordinarily strategic. It's like a chess game. They're also very manipulative. And they're not manipulative for a good way. Like now I, the work that I do is about seeing through people and seeing even their most vulnerable and their tender and protecting it. Before I understood what that power was, I used to use it to my advantage. So for example, I would, I would see someone's weak spot. I would know what it was immediately and I would go for the jugular. So I would wait for the time and then I would strike. So if you ever feel that, oh my God, this person just came after me, but they totally got me. They got me and they dangle bait. And what I mean by bait is they'll, they'll poke the bear. They know how to get you going. They know what topics, how to get you going. And they kind of do it and they're smirking and they're smiling. And then all of a sudden you find yourself way deep in argument with them or way deep and you feel embarrassed. As soon as you feel embarrassed that you've gone too far, or as soon as you feel like, oh my God, how did I let that person know that much about me? How did, because they're very charming at first too. They will pull. So if you've ended a conversation and feel like you gave way too much of yourself and you feel vulnerable, that should be your first tip off. If they're too charming, you know, there's, there's too much going on, you know, the, the old adage, right? If it's too good to be true, mm. uh, again, your radar should go off. Why? Some people are really, and for a while there, I felt like all people like that. I didn't trust people because I didn't know whether they were really being sincere or whether they were, they had an ulterior motive. The other thing that they do is they create toxicity for the sake of it benefits them. So they'll stir mm, the That's pot. so fascinating. Yeah. They'll stir the pot. They'll kind of, um, they'll get, because they're good at pulling from you, right? Telling, getting too much from people. And then they take those nuggets and then they go tell somebody else with it that might get them going. And all it does is it creates smoke screens off of themselves. And then they get everybody else to um, kibitz here and there and here and there and here. It's a little bit of what we're seeing on a grand scale right now. <laughs> I'm not going to go down that road. No. <laughs> politically, uh, there's a lot of that going on. I think that's what politics is. I think politics has become a dirty game of narcissism. And so, I, don't, I don't mean just the president. I, believe me, I, mean, I mean the whole network. So now that you know what you know and you have learned from all of these experiences and, and growing up your whole life, what do you do or what do you advise people to do if they believe that they are in the presence or working with or have someone in the family that is a narcissist? Like what is your recommendation of how to handle that or what to do? Yeah. Um, so another one of the behaviors, because this will connect with what to do is they're what I call blame throwers. They never mm. attach ownership or blame to themselves. It's you, you and a lot oh, of people yeah. that aren't narcissists, but really it's a pervasive thing with them. It's the yeah, but. Yeah, but is very much a victim statement. So the one thing that narcissists are is they're the they're the perpetual victim. They believe that it's weird because narcissism is really a reflection of all their insecurities. But so it, it appears as though they're super confident and, and, and obsessed with themselves. And really they're not, they're very fragile and they're very 
um, I would say like kind of delicate. So whenever you say something about ownership, they can't stand in that truth of owning it. They've got to make it, well, it wasn't me, somebody else, mm. somebody else. So really the only way to manage them is to want to identify, to, to hopefully realize it early on and not get involved into a business relationship with them. Um, or as soon as you do try to resolve it, try to finish the product and get out. Um, you know, say you're too busy, never confront a narcissist <laughs> about their narcissism because it's pointless and it's just a waste of your energy. So if you suspect someone's that way, um, and entrepreneurs, I find uh, there's a lot of narcissists in entrepreneurial because the, the reason being is we all, we all get into entrepreneurial work because we love the idea of creating, right? Mm. We love the idea yeah. of, of being um, in charge of something and, and building something. And, and, and a lot of people do get, into, there's a significant amount that get into it because they can't work for other people. Mm. That's the sign of a narcissist. If you cannot work for him because they don't do it good enough and only I'm doing it, but they're not in the ring. And what I mean by in the ring is, and I struggled with this putting out my book, the book is out for the whole world to read. The old person, the old Tammy that was the victim struggles with that because there's a tenderness, right? Like I have to let people read it and they're either going to like it or they're not, or maybe they're going to make judgments on it. And I have to be okay with my self-esteem to say that's okay. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you're less than or worse than you're okay. And that's, that's with anything that comes with anything. entrepreneurship, like not even just a book is that I know I faced that a lot when I was just getting into entrepreneurship is that what are people going to say? What are people going to think? There's going to be people who don't like me, like, how do I handle that? And so that comes from anytime you're stepping outside of that comfort zone, not even just when you're, you know, writing a book, like I know that came up for me a lot. And so it's a, a matter of, you know, how do you accept that? And how do you be okay with the fact that other people aren't, you know, going to, not everyone's going to like you and that's okay. Exactly. And, and that's okay. And it doesn't mean I'm less of, yeah. it doesn't negate my self-worth. Exactly. And narcissists, the damage is about their self-worth. That's their fragility. So they can't take direction from other people. They can't, they don't like authority. They don't like someone telling them what to do. They don't like, and so those are trauma wounds that I'm still working on. I'm still working on, you know, especially during this whole COVID thing, it's been really mm -hmm. hard to feel, you know, a little trapped because autonomy is so important to me. Well, autonomy is important to me because it's a trauma wound of not having power, having my power taken away by a narcissist. And this is why I feel the book is so important for people to understand that it's a long line of trauma and it's very hard to break the codependency because this has been going on for multiple generations. And I do believe it's coded in your DNA. I do think you are working against some biological issues as well. Um, and the one thing I will say for any, any, it's, it's easier in work, right? Work you can make up and say, I'm too busy. I have all these other clients and I, and I would advise you, it's never worth the money. If you suspect that someone is, they, they will soak you dry. And what I say, soak you dry. I learned is, that lesson. Yeah. 
never good enough. It's never going to be good enough. Yeah. They're never good enough for themselves. Yeah. They will nitpick every product you pull out. And then the other thing they will say is, well, this isn't what we discussed. Yeah. <laughs> They'll gaslight you. Right. That, gaslight so that, that, that's a term that I've heard a lot that I still don't fully understand. So can you explain what it means? Yeah. 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 You will have a conversation with them about expectations, right? And this is, I've seen this happen to even senior entrepreneurs. They're 40 years into it. Mm. They have, you know, when you work with someone who's been, you know, it isn't their first rodeo and they yeah. send you 19 pages of, of contract and yeah. it says on such and such a date. And then these are the expectations that'll come out on this and such a date. Even if you have all of that, you know what the narcissist will say? Well, yes, but on our, our second phone call, you made reference to there's exceptions. And one of the things that we made, they, they're like memory, they have an impeccable memory usually. And it, because they, again, they're strategic, they're looking for the loopholes as you speak to them, right? So they befriend you and then they're looking for the loopholes. And on top of it all, they will say things that you never said. Well, if you're like me, who's so fast going and you say this and you say that, sometimes you're like, did I say that? <laughs> I don't even remember the half of the things I said. Right? And then you go, wait a minute. And the first time it happens, you're like, oh, well, yeah, maybe I did say that. Sure, sure. Let's redo it. I, I, you give full faith, right? Because yeah. you're a normal functioning human. You give full faith that no one's trying to screw you over. You're just trying to. Yeah. But then they say it again. They say, well, no, 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 no. That's that's not what we talked about. We talked about blah. You know, the, the kid that you play games with in your neighborhood that changed the rules mid-flight? Yes. <laughs> that's who, that's, that's <laughs> the best way to say that you're gaslit. That person that's like, let's play a game of, you know, trivial pursuit or monopoly. And then every time you pass go, they create a new, no, 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 it's not that it's, it's this, you have to, you have to buy four houses before you get a hotel. Oh no, I thought we could just buy a hotel, right? No. And they're constantly changing the rules. And they obfuscate, they cloud it. So you don't, that's being gaslit. So anytime you walk away from a conversation, having to call your coach or having to call somebody else being like, am I crazy? Or did she just say what I thought she said? Oh, I've been there. Dead ringer. That is a dead ringer for red flag for get the F out of there. Like, yeah. And again, it's never, cause they'll pay you a lot. That's the other thing, but it's never worth it. It's exhausting too, from my experience. It's exhausting and it, it subconsciously it eats away at your self-worth of competency, right? You think- And your clarity. Not- That's what I would always, I would always feel confused after my like engagement with this person. I would always walk away feeling confused then of, I came into this meeting so clear-minded of what I wanted and then we just- totally took a detour and now I'm over here. And, and I was just this constant state of confusion. I felt. Yeah. And that's obfuscating, right? They, they will create things, start you off here and you there. And part of it is, you know, some people don't even realize they're doing it. I would, I, I, most people that have narcissistic behaviors, I think are quite unconscious. They learned it from someone. Mm. And again, that's why I say, don't confront them. Don't talk about it. Just try to end the contract and move on. Um, 
And even, you know, I've, I've said, end the contract mid-flight. Because no matter if it, you know, you're worried about, oh, are they going to say bad things about me? Or are they going to, you know, jade my, my reputation? Some of them could. Um, but all it's going to take is a couple times for other people to meet them. Mm. <laughs> right? I always, whenever I hear bad things from people about other people, I'm always like, okay, you need to validate your source. Meaning totally. is this a reliable source of where I'm yeah. hearing this bad feedback from, or is it the source that's the problem? Right. Because people that, that talk crap about other people like that, generally they do it to everybody. So I, I generally don't, it's the person that rarely says anything that then tells me, Hey, listen, I wouldn't do business with that person. Right. If they, they never talk bad about other people. And then they say that you're like, okay, I've got, I guess I should be taking that into consideration. Yeah. Um, I will say one thing, if you have narcissists in your personal life, when, and this is one of the things I talk about in the book, um, they're also known as the gatekeepers, meaning they will use other people as pawns. And this is why they're so damaging as parents or family members. And, and I have a family member that, that went through this where if let's say one of your parents is ill or sick or aging grandparents, or whatever, and you get the narcissist they're the gatekeeper. They won't, they'll use the other person as collateral. So when we, when we think about our keystones and taking them down and, and restructuring our lives, sometimes I tell people, and this is not, this is against the norm of how, what people who work with narcissists recommend most, in other words, most times they say, cut off the relationship, have absolutely no contact because they don't, they violate boundaries. And you saw that in the contract and your mm -hmm. work, they don't have boundaries. I can't say that enough. They'll call you. That's another thing. They'll call you. If you start noticing weird patterns of calling at one o'clock in the morning or text messaging at, at mm -hmm. random hours or wanting you to be on all times of the day, dead ring, another red flag. Um, so those, sometimes you have to, if, if the other person is, is important to you, you have to tolerate the behavior. And, and so I, I, I always say, um, again, you, you know, you best and you know what you're trying to, to, to have and dealing with a narcissist, never easy if they're holding someone a little bit in hostage, which is, is I don't, for me, that didn't, cause I was a child with, but it did happen because once I cut my father out of my life, I had to cut his entire side of the family. So I which lost, isn't easy. No, I lost all my aunts, um, my dad's partner, um, because you can't engage with them around that person's back because then they'll, uh, my grandmother, uh, his mother, I didn't have any contact with any of them for, for many years and didn't, you know, wasn't at, wasn't at her funeral or, you know, because again, you give them an inch, they'll take, and once they're back in, then the whole trauma cycle starts all over mm. again. So that's why therapists highly recommend, you know, cutting off, cutting off, which again, is really hard to do. It's really hard. Yeah. Really hard. Yeah. So I, I feel for people that, you know, I was lucky. I had an entire mother's side of the family that was really supportive and loving and um, healthy and, you know, but they, and then they were traumatized, right? Like they were scared to death of, of my mm -hmm. father and what he was going to do. 
I got to the point where I was so tired and frustrated of it that I said, well, you know, I'm already living in fear. So what are you going to do? Because the threats were yeah. weird, right? Like the, and then I, yeah. So, so, so when it came to um, thinking back about this, like everything that you've been through and, and your story and all the things that you've learned um, when it comes to dealing with narcissists and, and how to manage that what was this whole process like to then turn that into a book? I know I kind of got um, an eye into, you know, the process of you writing it and publishing it and all that stuff, but what are some of the the top lessons or things that you learned from going through and then documenting this whole process in your book and, and sharing that with other people? That healing isn't a linear line. So you can think, for me, or I, I could think, oh, I've healed that. Yep, healed that. I can put it in a box, put a bow around it and go, isn't that pretty? See, I'm done. I'm, <laughs> I moved on from victim. Yeah. I own my life, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden I'd be writing the book and something would come up and I'm like, for the love of all that's holy, why is this showing up again? Or why is this person showing up again? Or why that was in a box, filed away underneath my cabinet, I thought I dealt with it and it, so healing is one of these weird things where you think you've done it, done the work and you, there is no, you know, whether, you know, you listen to Oprah, you listen to Tony Robbins, or you listen to Deepak or all these Brene Brown, all these people that would be, you know, at different points in my life were kind of like my, my beacons. They've all kind of said this in a, in a different way and it, it became really real for me. There is no aha. You know, uh, Oprah talks about the aha moment. There is, there's these many ahas along the way, but there isn't an aha that's going to open up the door and be like, I'm fixed. <laughs> no, like I'm, everything's I'm, perfect. Everything's perfect. <laughs> and that's why the coaching relationship has been so powerful for me along the way is that um, you think you got it like the day that you have mm. that win and you think you got it all. And you're like, yes, I can finally put this behind you. And it's like, no, it doesn't work like that. There's, um, there's body memories. There's, there's um, like reverbs. There's trauma made sense at 30 trauma made like, so the book has taught me that, that trauma is not linear and, and healing isn't linear. There's a lot of things that will creep up along the way that you thought you dealt with that come back. The other lesson um, is divine timing. Mm. I have no idea. I went, so side, sidebar, I went to an astrologer last January. So a year, year ago, probably from this week. And she said, and at, th at that point, get this, this is comical. At that point, I told her that this book was coming out in April. So April of 2020. <laughs> and she said to me, and she she goes, yeah, no, it's not. That's what she said on the, on the recording. And I yeah. said, oh, you're funny. I said, maybe you're talking about another book that I'm planning to write. She goes, yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe, maybe that's. <laughs> and she's just, like, I, little do you know. <laughs> do you know. She goes, you're not out of the water yet. Like your chart shows that you've got some, you've got some crap to plow through. And I was like, oh my God, really? And she goes, yeah, it's going to start letting up a little bit on the solstice of 2020. 
And I was like, for the love, I got it. And I just didn't believe her. I was like, yeah. she's definitely talking about something else. And here we are in January. It's finally, the book is getting released today. Um, and so there's a divine timing. I don't know why. I don't know what 2020 was about. I guess I'll look back and figure it out um, at, a, at a later point in time. But I, there's a divine timing for a lot of things that happen in your life. And again, I that is not saying that you should sit back and twiddle your thumbs and let the world happen to you because I do believe in inspired action. But I do believe that sometimes no matter how much you push stuff, it's, I didn't know in my childhood that the junk that I went through was gonna relate to my work. Yeah. Think about that. Think yeah. about how many people I've, or how much joy I find in my, I mean, I love what I do. I love working with organizations and huge strategic initiatives and, and training people and working with leaders, you know, that are owners of companies. And, but all of that wouldn't have happened if I didn't go through. And it's really easy for people to say, and I don't say it because it's not helpful to the person in the moment. But if you look at people going through hardship and you say, everything happens for a reason, that statement's not helpful. So I don't recommend that. <laughs> I believe it to be true. Yeah. But as a coach, that's not helpful to the person, right? So yeah. I, I believe we have to meet people where they are and you say, okay, here we are. Let's make sense of today. What do we have control over? And yes, and validate the person. This effing sucks, yeah. right? Um, and so I think what happens is, you know, Brene talks about that silver lining thing. We don't want to silver line people's silver line or people's pain, right? Because yeah. it's very validating. And one of the things too, that I, that still sticks with me to this day that you had said to me when I was in my full-time job and I was miserable and I hated it and I wanted to start my own business and do my own thing. One of the things that you said to me that I still apply into my life now is you said, what are you learning or what are you taking away from this job? What are you taking away? What skills, what lessons, like, what are you learning from this experience? That's going to help you when you start your own business. And when I put that hat on and I put that lens on, I learned so much that prepared me for my business and for starting my own business. And I learned so much about what I didn't want in a job, in a workplace, in a lifestyle that allowed me to have the clarity to understand what I did want, you know? So a lot of those times it does suck when we're going through it and we don't want to be there and everything, but also changing your lens and thinking about, all right, what is the clarity that this is giving me? What are the skills? What are the different things that I'm learning that this is giving me? And I still take that with me every time I work with a client, every time I go through a challenging you know, moment in my business or in my life, I think about what are the things that I can learn from this experience and bring with me moving forward. Totally. I, in a, in a lighter moment or a lighter poignant or addition or addition to that, to that point is I worked with when I was in education. So the kind of second job, I guess, out of school. So after I went into retail and whatever, I started working with at-risk youth and it was an alternative school in, in Rochester. It was actually named after my grandfather, which is a sidebar story, but, and those kids are talk about adversity, those kids have had, uh, yeah, horrific stories uh, of things that have occurred to them. And, and 
and here I'm trying to teach them, right? I'm trying mm. to be like, let's talk about life skills. Yeah. And they're like, you've lost your dang noodle. And they're looking at me as if I'm like this golden child, right? Because my grandfather was, they didn't know anything about my life, but they yeah. thought, and I sat there and I was like, what is this teaching me? Now, fast forward 20 years. You put me in a room with executives, a lot of, you know, men, Mm-hmm. 50, 60 years old who look at me and are like, what is she doing here? Right. Or when I first got started, I, I was a little insecure. Here I am 30 something talking to a board of bunch of uh, older people um, and consulting, telling them what they're going to do with their, with their survey results. And um, I said, there's nothing, there's no audience that can be as scary <laughs> as a group of kids who have so much street smarts that they can sniff you out right? Mm. Those, those kids were so smart. They were just like me. They were so able to sniff out a room and be like, you're full of shit. You're full of shit. And I'm going to find out what your thing is. And I'm going to throw salsa. They tested every, so I would not be prepared for any audience anywhere that I go, if it wasn't for those kids. That's, that's incredible how that works out, isn't it? How those, those times earlier in your life, you help just you all your skills down the line. Build. Yeah, totally. They build yeah. right one. And, and it really is true around 40, 40 is when the doors start to just go because you've, you've had. Yeah. And for some people like for you, it'll happen younger. Cause you just got started so early and you, you just had that fire and, and you push through, but for, for me, it was, and for a lot of people, I think it's that 40 that just kind of, and you start to settle in meaning for me, the confidence really settling into my own skin. And you've been around the block a few times that you also, you settle in and you slow down Mm. because you realize and you kind of relax. I took myself a little too seriously where now I'm like (laughs) the P-Funk quote or the parliament funkadelic where ain't nothing but a party. (laughs) Like that's a little about what life is. Yeah. I feel like just a little bit of a party. And the more you kind of settle into understanding about have fun on the ride and you get a little lighthearted, that's when things really start to blow up in a good way. I love that. Thank you. Um, so so as we wrap up here, I just totally messed up my mic. As we wrap up, what is like the number one piece of advice you have for entrepreneurs who either are dealing with a narcissist or have one in their life? Um, what is your what is your number one piece of advice for them? Number one piece of advice. Um, it's not you. <laughs> it's not you. It's not you. And their reactions to you, they're gaslighting you, they're whatever. You find a way to get out if you can. If you can't, meaning it's family and you got to do what you got to do. You got to do what you got to do. Um, but if you can get out, get out, especially if it's business related, know that it's not, you don't, don't let them suck your energy out of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, there will always be more clients. Amen. There will always be more client. There will always be some, as soon as you say no to one, I feel like three come in Yeah. because you are claiming you are stating to the universe that is not for me. (laughs) I do not choose that. And so I put up a boundary and I say, that is not for me. And then by saying that's not for you, guess what? Three of what you do want usually comes in. I love that. But it's not going to come in if you, if you settle, right? Right. That's what that keystone thing is about is taking down the things that stopped serving you a long time ago. Right. That unintentional 
people in your life as, as you were a child put in place, right? If, you, if you're yeah. a child and, do, and don't have a family network that told you you're smart, you're capable, you're kind, you're full of love, you're full of power, and they tell you, God forbid, but they tell you you're stupid. They tell you you're, you know, you, you tell someone enough one thing, people believe it. Yeah. And I'm a firm believer in that. And so we all, I think, at 18, 21, 25, should be looking at what did our parents put into play that I never consented to. And having empathy too for what their parents told them. Yes. You know, and and having empathy for the childhood that they grew up in and the environment and the life that they had growing up as well. And understanding too that majority of the time people are just doing the best they can, you know? 100%. 100%. My mother, you know, when I wrote this book and I put it out there, I was like, mom, because I didn't want her reading it and thought that she could take the blame of what had happened. Right. And it's like, this isn't a blame game. It was you were surviving. You were yeah. with someone who was abusive. What were you supposed to do? Yeah. You had a child, you had no money, you were an army wife. Like she, she had no career. It wasn't like today's world where women, you know, I mean, it was, it was a lot has changed since 1978. Right. Um, and so, and empathy and gratitude. Yeah. Right. Like I have empathy for my father. As soon as I started to understand my father's relationship with his mother is when things started to click for me and deep empathy. And in the, the book, there's a picture of my dad as a little kid. If you can step into seeing your parents as little children, it's a very powerful exercise. I think Louise Hay talked about that because you see through their lens of how they were, what keystones somebody put into their head, right? Yeah. They never healed. And so when you heal, you heal your entire line. Yeah. Line to come and line previous before. And so it's a huge gift that they gave you that you, they were creating enough stability in you that you have the, the, that you have the privilege of self-analysis, self-awareness, because when you're poor, self-analysis ain't something you're, you know, and I would say, I'm not saying poor people don't have self-awareness. I'm saying when you're surviving, yeah, you don't, you don't often have time to be like, I'm going to go to a strategic yeah. yoga session <laughs> where I'm going to look at my, you know, that's just not in your, yeah. you're just getting by. You got four kids or three exactly. kids or whatever. So I was, again, gratitude that I was able to have a, st- even it was crazy. My, my mother's side provided stability for me to, to have that ability. Amazing. Tammy, this was so, this is such a full circle moment for me to have you on the show. This is so cool. So thanks for being on and thanks for sharing all of your insights and wisdom. Can you tell everybody um, where they can find you, the name of your book, how they can get it, all the good stuff? Yes. So you can find me on Instagram, Tammy Y. Jordan. Um, You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, You can email me, which if you buy the book at the back of the book has my email in it. Um, but the book is called Returning to Whole, Finding Our Way Back to Who We Were Meant to Be. Um, and it goes live on Amazon, hopefully today, well, which by the time the podcast airs, it, is, it will be live on Amazon. So yeah. All you have to do is go on Amazon, search Returning to Whole, hopefully it'll come up. Uh, and again, my name is Tammy Y. Jordan. 
And you can go to returningtohold.com forward slash free chapter. Yes. To get a free chapter of the book as well. You can get a free chapter, which hopefully will get you hooked and then you buy it. <laughs> and awesome. to our newsletters that are coming up, which will also have promos and stuff. Um, I'm also an artist too. So some of my- Yeah, she is. is in there. The artwork is beautiful. Thank you. Yes. Thanks for being on the show, Tammy. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Lexi. I adore you. I adore you. Thank you. I'll talk to you again soon. Talk to you. Bye-bye.